with Rafi and Chandra, the podcast where we look at how the random affects the everyday. And today we have another special guest, another interview. So, so hooray. Welcome, Anthony Rapisada. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining us. There we go. Now we can have the proper applause. I love that. How are you going? <laughs> Great. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm just recovering from being a bit sick. I was just telling Chandra about that. But, uh, Anthony, oh, yeah. was I, it the Rona? So, he's so dedicated no, that um, no, I had, I had he dodgy literally song. drugged himself up just to come on our podcast. How yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, bit, I sound a bit croaky and look a bit wheezy. It's because I had a bloody bad sinus infection last night. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I, mean, I hope you took some good drugs. That'll make for a great, great interview. <laughs> and panel osteo, I've actually found, is like my new best friend. Oh, I love that stuff. It's so good. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh now, we got in touch because Charles, one of our previous guests, yeah. uh, told us that, uh, you know, you'd be a cool person to chat to. So here oh, we are. So thank you for uh, making the time. Yeah, pleasure. I'd love to find and out. I how thought... do you know Charles? Yeah. Oh, so Charles and I met through a mutual friend who's also an anesthetist. Uh, so he, his name is Ian, and he um, connected us when I was doing my, uh, I think it was my intern year at Gold Coast. And, you know, Ian said, look, there's this guy that's, you know, pretty funny, pretty loose, you know, you two will get along great. And it's like, oh, yeah, whatever, mate. And that never works out that way. And then within seconds of meeting each other, we were just throwing chat and it was hilarious. And I was like, okay, yeah, we're going to get along pretty well. <laughs> and then, yeah, ever since we've just been really close friends and, you know, worked, worked for a bit together. And then we've, you know, our lives have gone on very different career paths and journeys. Um, he's gone down the occupational medicine pathway and I've gone down... Uh, well, started going down orthopedics, but now I've transitioned into biotechnology and uh, being an entrepreneur. So it's a it's a bit of a very random deviation from the established set pathway that I thought I was going to go down at the beginning. So it's quite... oh, you're saying you're saying all the right random keywords for this sort of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> tick tick. <laughs> yeah, so no, um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where as as we. So we, we met truly randomly. So it was in the um, – have you guys you guys ever worked in the in the Gold Coast hospital in Queensland, like the old – I grew up in the Gold Coast. Okay, so you remember the old hospital? In Southport. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yep. remember how we used to have the old BMW dealership? So the old hospital had no food capacity other than yep. some goddamn, you know, rat-infested, horrible cafeteria that had been – should have been condemned, you know, a decade before they shut the hospital down. So all the staff used to go to either the Audi dealership down the road because they had a cafe or go to the BMW dealership across the road because they had a cafe so you could get good food. Um, and so that's where I met Charles. I met Charles' BMW dealership and he was, you know, talking, you know, vast amounts of crap and I was laughing and talking vast amounts <laughs> of crap. <laughs> what all great friendships are made of. Yeah, yeah total bullshit. This is really good. It's really good. So I'm guessing you grew, you guys both grow up grew up in the Gold Coast and no like no no no. So it's really weird. So Charles grew up in Adelaide, um, yep. and I grew up in Sydney. And I was just saying to Chandra before that, like I when I got into medicine, I um, I went to Queensland in 2008 and moved to Brisbane um, from Sydney because I grew up my entire life in Sydney. And then I went to Brisbane in 2008 and did medicine up there. And it was only ever supposed to be med school maybe intern residency and go home. 
and then it turned into med school and obviously with some significant amounts of time overseas Queensland for like 13 years before I returned to Sydney uh started last year yeah so wow it wasn't uh exactly as I like nothing that what I ended up is remotely close to how I planned it what, what ended up keeping <laughs> so, you in Queensland there um also it's really weird like when I first started off with the training I um I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do orthopedic so you know my brain kind of works you know in that sort of spatial you know arrangement type way. I'm bit more visual and kinesthetic than I would be didactic sort of learner. So I was kind of naturally suited towards that. I've met some really great guys along the way through my training who've been just incredibly just influential on my thoughts and pathways as to which way to go. And then as I was going through that process, you know, I I started going through the training pathway for Queensland, uh, for the big pathway in Queensland. And then, um, you know, as with all things, met a girl. I'd actually met the girl while I was in med school, by the way. Um, but you know, the girl that I was dating at the time, um, she got recruited to this biotech company in Seattle that was looking at genomics and how to try and differentiate, you know, sepsis from SIRS, which is, you know, your infective mm -hmm. immune response versus your non-infective immune response. And it was really interesting because, you know, she was telling me about all the stuff because she was a PhD in biochemistry and I was kind of really interested in infection as well, infection control, because I felt like orthopedics kind of had to do all the manual labor of dealing with the infections from a surgical perspective. But then they didn't really have much input to the medical side because they probably didn't know as much as they could have. But then the ID guys would have all of the medical knowledge of, of what to do, but then they wouldn't understand the implications of what the surgical side of that process was. So there was no real cross-pollination between the specialties. And so I felt like I wanted to know about both. And so this girl was saying to me, oh, you know, come over and visit me and have a look at this thing we're working on. I was like, oh, okay, great. So I did. And again, as with all things randomly in life, I'm standing at an angel investors pitching uh, day or pitching session in Seattle. Um, it was on First Avenue in Seattle, just near the near the harbour. And oh, nice. It was beautiful. Yeah, it was just near Pike, just down the road from Pike Place Market. Seattle is my favorite place in the entire US. So uh, I love it. Yeah. I get it. I lived there for almost three years. I get it. It's a freaking beautiful place. But um, so this Texan dude, typically Texan American, I'm standing at the back of the room, you know, I've got one of those really big posters that's got like the company's logo and I'm standing next to a table of like information and brochures and whatever. And this Texan guy comes up to me and goes, so what do you know about this, uh, this Immuno Express uh, genomic septicide technology? And I'm just like, oh, well, you know, it's differentiates between infection and inflammation and it's really accurate and really fast. And he's like, ah, oh, that's excellent. I, I'm really interested in investing some money in your company. It's like, oh, okay, well, you should go and meet the CEO of the company. And so I, I'd met this woman one time before in my life, before that moment. <laughs> I walk up to him like, oh, you know, CEO, Dr. Brandon, this is some guy whose name I can't remember anymore. He wants to invest in the in, in Immune Express. And she, and she goes, oh, I see you've met our chief medical officer. And I'm just like, oh, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, sure. And she's like, oh, I'd love to talk to you. Let's go to concert, you know, let's talk. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and then at the time, she comes up to me afterwards and she's like, you know, you're a natural at this. And I was just like, uh, sure, okay, I guess. But, um, you know, thanks for the compliment, I suppose. And then she's like, you know, we'd really love to have you on board with this company. And I was like, oh, look, I, I appreciate that. But, you know, I'm 
I'm going to train to be a surgeon, thanks. And that's what I've been driving towards for my life. So thanks, but no thanks, you know. And um, so I ended up rolling back out of my trip to Seattle, had a lovely time. Um, and this was circa February 2013. Um, and then I'd come back to Australia and I was trying to set up a PhD project because they just announced they were setting up the first university and hospital affiliation between Griffith University and the Gold Coast University Hospital. It was like the first new hospital university association in like, I don't know, 40 years or something ridiculous like that. Um, and I worked with a couple of my mentors and, and, and sort of colleagues down there to, I designed this, this tibial nail that goes inside the bone that's made out of composite carbon fiber peak plastic. And I was like, look, I want to do this as part of a PhD and blah, blah, blah. I had this idea about how to do this because I had the same modulus of strain and bending moment as a tibia. So it would be, you know, something you could have in there that you wouldn't really know was there. It wasn't metal, didn't have to worry about all that stuff. And because it was, because of the way the plastic was set up, um, it's, it's actual molecular structure. It had a high negative charge, which meant that bugs could never stick to it. So you can never get biofilm. So, okay. Yeah. It was just a random thing that I was thinking yeah, about. Yeah. All from formula one, which I love cars. <laughs> um, so we can talk about it a bit, but, um, so anyway, and that's the, that's how Charles and I first really got, got you know, into fast cars and tick. Yeah, <laughs> if it flies, flies. Um, or what's the other one? I don't remember the other one, but uh, yeah, I'm interested. But the thing, the thing was interesting. That was uh, so the, the thing was like, so I took this to the guys at um at the department. I was like, hey, you know, head of department, you know, I want to do this thing. Director of training, I want to do this thing. But in order for me to do this thing, I need to do one FTE in four days instead of five. And they were like, yeah, that's fine, completely fine. You know, inaugural PhD project with the inaugural, you know, commencement of a new university association with the hospital. Absolutely sounds great. Here's our blessing. Sign the paperwork, take it to medical admin. So I took it to medical admin. And they went, nah. And I was like, what do you mean no? Like, nah. If we, if we make the exception for you, we're going to make the exception for everyone to adjust their one FTE in the number of days they want to do it. And I was like, but... I am doing something exceptional in a PhD. So this isn't like everyone's going to roll up with a PhD project. This is me doing it on my own with the first of its kind. I'm like, nah. And I was like, okay. Just took that back to the bosses. Bosses tried to push. Medical admin went, nah, not doing it. I was like, okay, that sucks. At the same time as that, you know, these, these you know, the CEO and CFO of this company in Seattle come to Australia for a visit to see some family in Brisbane. Oh, we should go out for dinner. You should come and talk to us. See how you're going. Oh, okay. So I go to dinner with these guys and, um, mate, they, they were very clever. Uh, I was sitting there bitching and moaning about how I was, can't believe these medical admin, blah, 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 won't let me do what I want to do. Ah, rah, rah. And they went, oh, well, you know, if you came and worked with us, we'd let you do whatever you wanted to do as quickly as you can do it. And I was like, oh, that's very good thing. Um, and so they, 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 they played it very well. They sold me. And uh, I went, you know what, I'll give this, I'm going to give it a go because I can always go back to training. But, you know, a number of times I'm going to get a chance to be involved in a, you know, groundbreaking world-first startup in medicine, probably none. So I thought, mm. I'll take it. So I signed on there and then. And I was gone in a few months after that to the USA and living in Seattle for until 20, 2013, until 20, end of 2015, start of 2016, I came back. And it was crazy. Like, you know, we, we created the world's first genomic assay that can differentiate sepsis from SERS. It's unbelievable. We got it through the FDA, 
I saw that uh, pretty recently FDA approved, wasn't it? Yeah, it was approved in 2017, February 2017 for my birthday. Yeah, and then nice. it got a point of oh. care approval um, in November last year on, mm. on a little sort of one, one size fits all box where you have a little cartridge you plug into, into a box and then it just runs the whole thing itself. Yeah. So, yeah, was, like, I mean, on all that, that deserves a clap at the very least. <laughs> oh, I got, you get uh, two claps. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what got me into that space. And then it was interesting because, you know, I was talking to um, a couple of my mentors who, who are now on my scientific advisory board. And I was sort of saying to them, like, you know, um, I still want to finish the training. And they were like, well, you can't realistically do it from over there. So if you want to finish it, you're going to have to come back. I went, oh, okay, all right, I'll do that. So I came back in 16, and once I got back in 16, I started um, back on the training pathways and unaccredited registrar, and I started seeing this recurring problem of undifferentiated joint pain rolling into emergency departments, into clinics, into wherever. And the big issue was that, you know, the registrars getting the phone call, I have a patient in wherever with undifferentiated joint pain. We don't know what it is. Can you come and see them? And it's like, well, okay, but how am I going to know more than what you know? Because, you know, we're all doctors. But you've got surgical hands. Yeah, yeah I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah, I've got, yeah, got surgeon hands. Okay, great. But, uh, you know, somehow you just wave over the joint and stuff. Yeah, exactly like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I was like, oh, okay, so I'll come and see the patient. I'm literally going to order the exact same test that you're ordering, but I suppose I can do that too. So I did. And then I started to think about what I'd done in the States and I started to think to myself, you know, I reckon I could probably figure out a way to differentiate these two conditions using the immune system. And so I, I had a horrible on-call roster when I was working in town, so it was horrid. Oh. It was 2 p.m. start till 7 a.m. finish the next day, but you did that for the whole week. And when then, were you in Townsville? Oh, 18 and 19. Oh, I would have just left. I was doing care flight there. Oh, it was rough, man. The <laughs> yeah. there was a dog's breakfast. And the car crashes around there are yeah. next level. Wow, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, the rest of these Andrew Simons, but geez, Louise, I've totally seen how those things go bad quickly because they are bad roads. The, the, off, the runoff with the culverts that are on the side of it, like... Mm. And just the animals in dawn and dusk. Like, I mean, my worst one was like a 5 a.m. truck had clipped a, uh, a horse and um, then another car had come speeding through and cleaved the horse in two. So I remember getting out of the heli and going, I don't think I can save anyone if this is the state of the patient because there was literally mint smeared. And they're like, ah, oh, horse's head, not patients. Okay, yeah. we might have a chance here. Cool, that's, yeah, yeah. damn. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. I had a like I had a big land cruise at the time, and I um, God, the number of times that I had um, animal strikes in that car was just ridiculous. But you know, um, and trees uh, randomly. I was uh, I was driving up towards Atherton with one of my friends to go to. A, there was a beautiful dairy farm up there called Gallo, which made all the lactose-free cheeses and creams and milks and stuff, which is phenomenal. Because I was, you know, obviously from Italian heritage, I'm very lactated. And, um, you know, I, um, I love this place because the, the cheese was amazing. I love cheese. Anyway, but we're driving along the road and um, I had my friend driving and all of a sudden, you know, 
I'm on my laptop. I was doing something on my laptop. I had to write an email to, to something to do with getting a, a clinical trial approved or something I was trying to do at the time. And then, you know, breaks on full on. I'm grabbing the laptop so it doesn't fly out the bloody windscreen. And this massive trees, bang. On the wow. Rack. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> we ended up having to get, because it completely blocked the whole highway. So I ended up getting the winch out of the front of the bull bar and hooking it onto the tree and winching the tree off the road so that we could just at least have traffic going through. But, man, like, if she wasn't paying attention, we would have been toast. It's pretty fun up there. It's a pretty, pretty vivid place to live, I've got to say. Yeah, Queensland. I'm trying to kill yeah. everybody slightly differently in creative yeah. and interesting ways. Yeah. So, on that note of that car crash, right? So, this yeah. is five in the morning. We yeah. top her out and we're just like five minutes out of Townsville. Like literally we could take off and I could see the hospital, right? Yeah. And we went into the ditch with the cars there and the patient's trapped and we're getting like, you know, the jaws of life to cut her out. And I look around and there's like a brown snake. And on the other side, on me are like these giant red ants that are just about to bite. Now, like it's five in the morning. I'm barely awake. I literally like sculled a coffee and ran to the, the, the helicopter. And there's at least three things trying to kill me and the gasoline's pouring out of the car. So they like, literally had to get her out of the ditch and then run. Um, and it's just like Queensland. Jesus, Rafi, it's like, come on, nature. Can you just give us a break for five seconds? Like, maybe just 10 minutes. Just 10 minutes would have been nice. Let's get this chick out of the car and then you can go and destroy whatever's left of the horse. Wow, right? <laughs> Even Queensland um, paradise is like that. In the Whitsundays, even Queensland paradise is like that. In the Whitsundays, yeah. it's great. Yeah, except, no, it's oh, great. by the way, there's jellyfish now. Oh, and by oh, the yeah. way, there was another shark attack on the, you know, <laughs> same day I'm there. <laughs> yeah, so, jeez. <laughs> I had a shark attack my first weekend on calls of registrar. In oh, I had a shark attack on a guy that was diving out at Fitzroy Island. And that was just insane. Like, uh, the photos are phenomenal. One day I'll show them to you, but... You know, he's got a bite mark that runs from his groin down to middle of his shin, and that's the width of the mouth of the shark. And it's severed his femoral artery, femoral vein, femoral nerve, profunda, all of it's gone. And his buddy, who was running the boat, um, happened to be a Navy SEAL dive instructor. who so happened to have one of those... As you do. Well, I mean, shit, you know, good friends to have. But um, he he had one of those special twisted tourniquets. And that thing totally saved this guy's life because then I was you know, strapping dive belts around his leg to stop the blood loss. And we got him to theatre and, you know, I've just never seen it. I, I was pulling the, you know, the shark's teeth out of the femur because it's just, oh, man, it was just wild. But and we tried to save his leg, but his cold time ended up being more than six hours. And when we tried to reperfuse him, he ended up having a reperfusion injury. And so we, we were knocking off his kidneys and his liver and we just thought, geez, you know, better... Better save his life by losing his leg. Stuff. But, um, you know, that was very unsatisfying surgery. But, yeah, that was my first weekend on call, Massive Shark Bite. Unbelievable. So, Queensland, man. Wow. Where else but Queensland, eh? Uh, Welcome to all the PDs in Queensland. <laughs> just in terms of, uh, just to go back to kind of your starting of the career and a bit of context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just because I'm like, I, I'm pretty sure we can just fill this podcast with just stories awesome. at this rate. <laughs> Better have some. Um, direction involved here because i was no i was just wondering um did you start off like finished high school went to uni for med school or did you do your research early or what was the career trajectory there well i kind of had a bit of a a wanderer's pathway i suppose i i um i've always had 
a lot of things that have interested me at the same time. And so I did high school, went to university, did Bachelor of Medicine, uh, Bachelor of Science, and did anatomy, histology, and biochemistry together because I couldn't really choose on one, so I just liked them all, so I did them all. And then I started doing sports science because I was really interested in, um, in looking at athletic performance of cyclists, actually. And um, um, I started doing that sort of VO2 max, you know, um, uh, cardiovascular conditioning stuff. And then I, I got into uh, a scenario where I was running this, 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 this progressive resistance training trial and the reason we were doing this, because what we wanted to show is that if you could build new muscle in anyone of any age, you could effectively re-establish healthy glute receptors that would be sensitive to insulin again, which would get rid of type two diabetes. And so oh, what wow. we showed was that if you start doing, if you start lifting, bro, all of a sudden you can get rid of your insulin resistance and your type two diabetes goes away. And then. We were talking about all this stuff and no one was really listening to what we were saying because I was just a master's on, you know, doing an honours thesis shit. And everyone was like, well, you know, we'll listen to the doctor. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I should probably be the doctor. And if you're, gonna listen, if you're not going to listen to me now, I should probably do that. So I applied and got in straight away and, um, yeah, did medicine. And then after I did medicine, I did a master's of surgery in orthopedics. And now I'm doing a PhD in molecular genomics, which is based around this research that's created this company that I'm running now. So that's kind of the weird academic pathway that I went through, but it wasn't direct at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, like little asterisk here is like, are you familiar with the work of Peter Atia? No, no. Uh, no. Okay. So he's based in Austin, uh, runs a podcast and stuff called The Drive. You would love it. It's literally like your glute receptor and so he's heavily into more ketosis and stuff like that and using rapamycin and whatnot for longevity but mm. one of the little side little asterisks is looking at um diabetes responses to muscle and vo2 conditioning so there's like entire podcast on that so i'm not gonna delve into that but no, something uh, i'll send you the links after yeah, um was... but it sounds like your the the trajectory of your career has just been like this insane curiosity and you're just exploring the things that interest you it, it, would that yeah. be a yeah. fair summary but and that's that's the thing leverage of the research right it's you know one of the things that i saw a lot with a lot of my colleagues when i was going through the first and second time with my training pathway was that, that you know the college has stipulations you need to do training and, and you need to have a certain amount of research points as part of your progression and i understand that's great um, because people should be doing research in an area that they want to be a specialist in. That's a natural fit. But one of the things I saw with a lot of my colleagues was they were like, oh, research. I don't want to do research. It's really shit. It sucks. And I was like, so do stuff that interests you? Like, that seemed like a natural, a natural antidote to the issue that they had was that if you are running into a situation where something's not interesting or exciting to you, why don't you just do the thing that is, you know? Hmm. And so when I started doing my research stuff, I was like, you know, there are all these fantastic papers that were coming out from all these wonderful surgeons looking at these incredibly esoteric things. And, you know, in orthopedics, the alignment debate rages on kinematic versus mechanical axis and all this crazy stuff. Biomechanics and seems to be the thing. Hey? Biomechanics seems to be the thing that all yeah. orthopedics... There's a lot of a lot of advantage to knowing about that stuff, but unfortunately, there's not a lot of 
information that can clearly delineate one superiority over the other based on, I think a lot of it's got to do with the method of researching and, with, and the ability to obtain good objective data measurement at the other end. So I think that's one of the problems is the observational side of it. The ideas behind it are very sound and very, very robust, but then, you know, half of research or half of good research is being able to objectively measure what you're trying to find. And can you repeat that? Um, and so what I started to think about with research was I wanted to, to solve problems. I wanted to use research to solve an issue, not just to get a paper and put my you know, points on a CV. Because when I was looking at my application for the pathway, you know, I, I had maximum points. Like there was no, like doing more research for me wasn't to get me a better CV. We're already satisfied all that, like a thousand times over. It's fine. Yeah, because from the, the sound of it, it sounds like, you know, you're actually curious versus doing it to check off a checklist thing. And yeah. this is my entire issue with, uh, like the ANSCA training program also has research requirements, but there's a recognition that not everyone likes research. So they've also substituted teaching degrees and whatnot, just because oh, if you're, cool. yeah, because the, my, my big issue with research is like, I did research, I did a BMED sci, but the process just killed all passion. It was just so painful that it's just pushed me away from it. Uh, and now if you made me do it, I would just do some shitty paper just to tick off a thing. And, but a lot of people do that, right? instead of just because they're forced to if it, you put in a checklist and they have to do it so you get all these it's literally a waste of time like no one wants to do it they just pick the easiest project not something that's interesting um but in terms of um so you've obviously explored it and turned it into stuff but you keep coming back to wanting to go back to orthopedics what's the what like you finished medicine why did you go to orthopedics to begin with um i felt like it was probably the best mixture of my cognitive abilities, my natural aptitudes, and my interest in something. So I find that orthopedics is a very good mixture of medicine that is in, is in the traditional sense of, you know, the physiology of various systems you need to know about. You need to be pretty good at pain management. You need to be pretty good at your hematology. You need to be pretty good at infection management, knowing your antibiotics and how those systems work. You also need to have a pretty good understanding of the anatomy of what you're doing and where you're doing it. And you also have to know biomechanics as well. So there's a bit of physics involved in that. And you need to know a bit about metallurgy. You need to know about, you know, uh, border and boundary lubrications. Um, you know, there's so much information that you have to be able to master to be good at this job. But then the other thing that's really good about it is that so you, you master all that information. You learn all this crazy stuff about, you know, how to fix stuff and how to make, you know, different metals interact with each other how to make antibiotics and blood thinners and analgesics work together so you don't kill someone. Um, and then you deliver a very, very measurable, very instant and very palpable outcome so that someone that comes in with a broken hip, you know, have their, you know, intertrochanteric necrophema fracture and you put a, you know, you put a nail down and then all of a sudden the next day they are literally up and they're walking around the ward doing their first days of rehab and physio. Like, that's wild. You know, years ago, you'd, you'd be left on the side of a, of a bush track and that'd be you done. But, you know, the fact that we can go, oh, you know, you've, you've technically had, and not technically, you have actually had a life-threatening injury with a mortality rate of 50% at one year, but don't worry about it. We'll sort you out and you'll be off walking out, out the ward tomorrow. Like, that's wild, man. It's crazy you can do that. So yeah. you know, it's not, it's not, you know, aspirin dosing and it's not, you know, measuring, you know, your bloody atenolols and all the beta blockers that you use for someone's blood pressure. 
Um, it's a bit more definitive than that, but I, I do love that aspect of it. And I also think that, you know, orthopedics has got two of the best operations, you know, the top three operations in the world for patient satisfaction is cataracts number one, and I think always will be, uh, hips and knees. So two and three. So the nice thing about all of those is it's just instant change. Yeah, Massive it's change. measurable change, instantly measurable change. And one of the things that's really cool about it is that because there's so many different big organisations and the people that supply the stuff to you working on the problems, um, are you guys familiar with the Delphi method or the Delphi approach? In terms of I've research? I've heard of it. Yeah, so look, it's a really cool idea. So well, I think it is. But um, what it is, we use this. So, so in 2018, I was writing the Musculoskeletal Infection Society guidelines with a bunch of other surgeons from around the world. And I was doing the host response stuff because it's what my technology is from. Um, but, but what you do with the Delphi method is you basically give a, a broad range of questions or, or an opportunity for everyone to ask a question or try and solve a problem with what they think is right. And then iteratively over time, what you tend to find is everything coalesces towards the right answer or the right solution because everyone tends to have the same ideas and think the same way and end up coming up with the same sort of, I have this issue, therefore this issue requires a solution, therefore this solution will look like this. And over time, with all these people independently trying to solve this problem independent to each other, blinded to each other, they all seem to arrive at a conclusion. And that conclusion theoretically has to be the right one because if enough independent minds have thought this is the right solution for the problem, then inevitably it becomes the right solution to the problem. So, you know, looking at that in orthopedics, the confluence of design between all the implants that we use, particularly the knees, it's all the same now. Like, the way you differentiate one company from another is basically the outline of an X-ray, but in terms of the functional performance of the actual device, it's the same. So because of that, you start to think to yourself, well, you know, there are still big problems that we have to solve. How do we solve them? And you start to step back and look at the potential research opportunities to do that, and that's kind of what created this technology in my, my solution to it. Because honestly, it was just frustration with getting phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning to come in to see someone that... I knew I couldn't do anything to improve at that point. But I also knew that with all the skills that I developed, all the, all the innovation that I created and things that I pioneered in, in the States, I thought I could probably fix this and, and find a way to make this solvable so that you either don't have to go in or you don't even have to call me because you just used an objective test or an objective measure. And it tells you the answer that you wanted anyway. And the rest of the process, shit, man, we, we've been known, we've known what to do with infections for you know a couple hundred years now. You don't need to learn how to do that. There's no no, no new information there. I think uh, just one of the comments I'd say is like just in terms of the method, it, it's kind of like saying when the light bulb was getting invented, you know, mm. there was multiple scientists working on the same problem. Someone had to like it, it's basically just the distilling of what you were saying is like, yeah, people do start to converge. I, I'm sure the ancient Sumerians were all building some version of a proto wheel and then someone happened to build the wheel, yeah. um, you know, and it seems to be like society seems to get to a level where the same problems are recurring often enough that multiple people just attack it, side one and end up solving it. Um, I suppose the only caveat to that would be like, kind of like looking at it from the Tesla car model where mm. it had a solution, it reached this local maxima, but then it caused its own other problems. So then you have to go back to the ground up and come at it from another angle. And then you reach a new local maxima and the process repeats. Uh, that's yeah. probably more of a- Sort of the counter to the Delphi method as well as the fact that if you have 
oftentimes people aren't necessarily independently coming to the same. Uh, got a friend there. <laughs> I have, I have. Just come here for a second. Let's uh, say hello to your friend. Well, hello. For those uh, that are dialing in, there's a very cute puppy that is currently and, on and we've stage. we've got another friend here. <laughs> <laughs> it's turned into a pet podcast with Gary. And, uh... <laughs> He's so cute. He's, really, he's so adorable. He just wanted to say hello. With that, Sorry. the problem is sometimes not everybody's quite independent. And so there's a lack of variety of thoughts as well and variety yeah, of solutions. So when, for example, with your joints now, they're all fairly homogenous and mm. it will usually take an outsider then to, or somebody who's had an experience in something else to then create that sort of, you know, next, uh, whatever that next one looks like. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, just to what you were saying and what Rafi was saying. So interestingly enough, the idea behind what everyone was doing to try and solve the joint pain or joint infection dilemma was everyone was trying to either healthy. Everyone was trying to either, um, sorry, everyone was trying to either use better methods for diagnosing the pathogen or finding the pathogen, or they were trying to use methods that they knew about with, with, a, I suppose, a, a preconceived idea of how to go and look for the potential solution from a diagnostic point of view with the, the, the known literature of what was out there. So, you know, to both of your points, they were, they, they had an understanding of a problem and they knew that there was a way to solve the problem. They didn't know how to do it because everyone was kind of doing the same thing. And then it wasn't until we came along and I came along as a sort of rank outsider, if you want to call it anything, um, where I thought, you know, I am going to use some of the technologies I pioneered in the States to solve this problem, but I'm not going to do it with an expectation of what I think I should find. I'm just going to let whatever the information that is there happen to just spill out and then interpret it that way. Because one of the, one of the key problems I identified was that everyone was doing a lot of ivory tower stuff. So it's like really, really infected patients versus really healthy athletes. And it's like, that, that's not real world, man. Like why would an athlete or someone that's healthy ever want to see us? Like that, you know, like, I mean, shit, dude, if you're healthy, the last person you probably want to be staring at is an anesthetist lying on your back looking at an operating theatre. Like, <laughs> no, you don't want to be there. So I thought, geez, that's not a very good comparison. So maybe it might be a better comparison if we looked at patients that were really infected and sick versus the patients that were really inflammatory and then how to solve for that process. But because we didn't have any literature on it, because no one had really done that, and we didn't know... Like there was a certain number of genes that had already been identified in the literature, like interleukin-1b and all that sort of stuff. But all the stuff that we found in our gene signature that works, that, that has become the basis of our product, it's like the most random association of genes that you have ever seen. Like some of them are associated with skin inflammation. Some of them are associated with epididymal inflammation, which is, you know, the <laughs> normal people, the... Uh, the nuts, the balls region of the man. Um, you know, just random stuff that if anyone had looked at it and gone, there is no way those things are even remotely correlated with each other. But then it's just like, again, just to telescope out for a bit of context, uh, yeah. we've mentioned like, you know, your previous company. We haven't really discussed what your current company does in a nutshell. So we should probably say that. I should, yeah. So sorry. As, as you know, we, we're doing a bit of a Robert Frost wandering on. Um, and, and... The best kind of podcasts. Mm. It's really fun, actually. But, uh, <laughs> so, so 
to go back, um, we talked a little bit about the issue with the phone calls at two o'clock in the morning and, and the pioneering of a certain amount of, of stuff over in the States for new space. That was great. Um, and, and, you know, they're doing great things over there. They're, they're launching the technology this year with um, all of their point of care devices. So then I came back to orthopedics and I, um, I saw this problem start to occur and I thought I wanted to solve this. So I started my own company called OrthoDX, which is short for Orthodiagnostics, which is clever. It's not clever. Um, <laughs> the domain but, name was available. Hey? <laughs> the domain name was available. The domain name was available. That's what it was. But then the, the clever part of the equation was what I called the test. I called the test Synvacor because, you know, Syn from the derivative of synovium and synovial fluid, which is the stuff in your joints, and Ica being the Greek word for infected or turbulent fluid. So that, that I thought was pretty cool. Mm. Um, and then what I did was I started collecting these samples at 2 o'clock in the morning because I was at the hospital anyway. Um, and, you know, my sister had just uh, graduated nursing at the time and she's just moved up to Townsville to work with me and, you know, sure enough, one day she turns up and opens up the freezer at home and there's rows of blood and synovial fluid and these racks in the freezer. And she's like, Ant, what the hell? Not condiments. Like, oh, you're sorry, darling. Oh, sorry, Steph, we're doing some research. You know, it's really great. Um, and so I never really expected this to go as well as it's gone, to be honest with you. I thought I would probably find something maybe a bit interesting, maybe write a paper or two, get a PhD and, you know, that'd be great. But, you know, what started off as just me collecting samples of Townsville, the public and private there, turned into all of Queensland, that then turned into all of Queensland and South Australia, that then turned into all of Queensland, South Australia, New South Wales. Now we're getting ACT and Victoria and Western Australia involved. Um, we're about to set up for a large national randomised control trial. Wow. In the middle of our capital raise for Series A. Like, it's just it's just exploded in volume and, and and it's just so exciting because the technology it's so accurate and it's so powerful being able to differentiate those patients so quickly i mean sample to result in four and a half hours and it gives you an answer every single time it's just insane so, so it's how have you actually gotten about developing is it like collect the samples run a bunch of tests then kind of do an analysis on that to see what correlates or like, is that roughly the? Well, so it's a pretty, like, I'm a really practical guy. Like, I'm a really straightforward, do stuff that yields results kind of person. So I collected all the samples. That was great. And I collected the samples based on whatever was walking through the door because I just wanted to have something that was as real world and as honest a reflection of what we deal with every day as I could possibly deliver. So then once I got all of that, I literally went to a laboratory at QUT in Brisbane and I, you know, did the extractions and sequenced the RNA and took the RNA sequencing. And with a colleague of mine that I used to work with in Seattle, he and I sat down and we did the genomic analysis and we looked at a couple of algorithms that we developed together to differentiate between what genes were turning on for infective partner pathways, what were going on for the inflammatory pathways, did they or downregulate each other? And eventually over time, we figured out that we could derive a seven gene signature that some of the genes would turn on for infection and suppress the inflammatory ones and the vice versa would happen. So when you were looking at the corollary, you'd end up with a really powerful signature that was self-validating. So basically the, the step was collect the samples, then do the sequencing, do the analysis, do the bioinformatics, rinse and repeat to be able to validate that it worked. And so we've done that over 
geez, almost 400 patients now. Um, and, and is it the samples? Are they actually joint sa- like as in synovial fluid, or and is the product that you're developing again a synovial sample based one, or are you doing it as a blood test? Because you mentioned that. Okay, so it yeah. yeah. This is, yeah. Okay. Cool. One of the reasons we're doing both is because one, one of the issues we, we were going to run into was that, um, you know, if I wanted to shift the paradigm of thinking to be able to deliver information at a time that surgeons had never had it before and physicians had never had it before, um, I would have to do it in a way that they would be able to walk across that sort of valley of understanding to know that this was indeed reliable and functional. So we do synovial aspirates. We do synovial cultures, MCSS differentiations, all sorts of stuff. So when you're looking at that, and if I say from that same space, we can deliver information that you otherwise couldn't see because you didn't have the right visualization tool, which is the genomic side, that's great. But if I walked up to someone and said, hey, I can take a blood sample out of your elbow and tell you if your hip's infected, they'd probably say, no, you can't. And I understand that. So what we did was to get, to get over that issue, we collected blood and synovial fluid from every single patient at the exact same time. So mm. that every time we did a synovial assay that worked, we had it matched to a blood sample. And if the blood sample and the synovial sample were correlated, it was from the same patient, it couldn't be anything but. So we solved for those problems along the way. So I anticipate what the question is going to be, what the criticism will be. And not, it's not bad to have criticism, by the way. It's great to have it. Um, it helps focus what you need to work on. But, you know, in anticipation of these issues, I'd be like, oh, I know how to ask that question. Bang, here you go. Here's the information. That's so pretty cool. Sounds like those are things. Did you pick that up from your work over in Seattle before that you'd have to answer or predict these sort of questions or did you find them from elsewhere? No, I think a lot of it was from Seattle actually because, like, so you both know what it's like to be 2 o'clock in the morning dealing with a critical animal patient, right? You've done it. I've done it. It sucks. And... You know, a lot of the stuff that we were doing in Seattle was in that intensive care environment. And, you know, we could deliver the test in about 90 minutes, but most of the physicians there were like, I don't want to wait 90 minutes because there was that paper that was out in 2013 by, um, oh, I just forgot name, the, uh, the paper about the every hour of delay changes your mortality for sepsis by What's his name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, used, no, I, used, got me. I used to know that cold shit. Oh. I'll figure it out in a bit. But, um, uh, but yeah, so, you know, we had a lot of people that would have that sort of trepidation at wanting to know how that stuff works. And so what we would do is we'd say, right, in anticipation of your concern or your question or your query, we would provide you with the information up front. So before you got to go, ah, oh, but you'd be like, Oh yeah, you've already answered that. Great. So you know that was that was probably where that came from. And I think the way we've developed this technology now, it's it's really it's really simple. It's very elegant. Most good solutions are. Um, we don't use anything that that's not off the shelf in the sense that you know talking about your Tesla example before, Rafi. You know, Elon Musk didn't invent batteries or electric motors or cars. He just put them all together in a package that made sense that people wanted. So we haven't invented bioinformatics or genomics or PCR or any of that stuff. We've just put it together in a package that makes sense that people want to be able to solve that problem. So that's Is that the sepsis. Before we, before we talk a little sepsis. bit more about the solution specifically, um, mm. 
I guess one thing I was just curious is going back a little bit, it sounded mm. like you started this as a research sort of interest mm. and then from that came your startup. Is that right? Or did you always, did you sort of. I always had a commercial endeavor for it. Mm-mm. I think I started this just as pure research because one of the things I always wanted to do was deliver something that was useful. Because I guess the main problem is research is great, but I always wanted to do stuff that led to a thing that could make a difference to a problem. It's kind of like the orthopedic version of research, it's, you know, actually making a, you know, mm. take something and then take it back out and make it see a difference with it as opposed to just publishing a paper on it. Mm. One like, of the things what, that I guess, I, you know, there's probably a lot of medical people who are, you know, doing interesting research projects who are probably keen to try to take it out of the research world. But I know a lot of people get stumped or stopped because of intellectual property issues. Mm. Um, you know, I don't know how much you can, can't say, etc. cetera, but uh, is there some, you know, some insights you could share for uh, medical people who are doing research at the moment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. First things first. If you're going to take something from an idea or a research concept into a commercial pathway, you have to protect your IP. And you have to do that at the expense of publishing your papers right away because once your papers and your research is published in a public domain, you lose the ability to project it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I would advise you to get a very, very good patent attorney and and someone that is familiar with the space. and has the ability to offer you not just a simple fee-for-service type arrangement, can actually problem-solve with you and, and see the issues and anticipate them. And then the third thing I'd say is if you are going to commercialise something, uh, be prepared to be told no and rejected a lot. Because until... Who's it, doing the rejecting? Oh, investors, colleagues, friends, you name it every walk of life, every, every step of the way, you know, I've had people telling me I was an idiot for trying smarter and better people than me have tried and failed. And what makes me think I'm so blah, 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 blah. And it's just like, yeah, cool. Awesome. Great. Nice. What's one more failure, right? What's one more on the path? There's so many there already. What's one more? Well, I mean, uh, also for you, it's like, it's the stuff that interests you. So it's not really a failure. It's just exploring a curiosity, right? Yeah, that's how I always thought about it. But, you know, other people yeah. were like, you know, you've because one of the things I feel like, you know, and this is a bit tangential, but one of the things I feel like is um, probably missed along the way with a lot of junior doctors in medicine particularly is that, you know, just because you have a medical degree doesn't mean you have to be a doctor. Like, hmm. become one because you have the degree and you do your first couple of years of practice to get yourself familiar with it. But over the last couple of months, like talking to a lot of the doctors that work in VCs and, and you know, work for advisories and, are in the financial space, like these guys are incredibly sought after, incredibly sought after, and they are paid incredibly well because the ability to just simply speak a language and be familiar with a concept that your colleagues in banking and investment just and law just don't get because they've just never been sensitized to it. They don't even speak the language to even understand the concepts. It is so unbelievably valuable that, you know, if you get disillusioned or disheartened with clinical medicine, because it can happen, it does happen a lot, um, just don't think to yourself, oh, that's it, I, I can't do anything else. There's so much you can do. I, I think, uh, like, I, 
I was going to come back to this point a bit later on, but since we've brought it up already, I think yeah. the biggest thing is it's kind of like, if you think of a, a translator, right? Like literally yeah. ring up a translator, yep. that is an entire career just being able to speak two languages together. And yeah. what you're saying is basically that, like the language of medicine plus insert any other random topic basically makes you that job title, right? Yeah. And you can do so much with it. And I think to the point where, uh, like there are listeners of this podcast that have come and told me that they feel like they're stuck in this, you know, the tram tracks. And me medicine, I think one of the things about it is if you've had the easy pathway, like, you know, I got into anesthetics as a HMO3. So I was basically, that's what I want to do. That's what I've got. Great. And it doesn't feel like resistance because it's just like lubricated along. But mm. if you haven't picked it early or if it's been uh, a bit of a grind, by the time you get out the other side, you've been so used to the tram tracks of being having to check off the, the checklist that yeah. you feel like once it ends that you just follow what everyone else has done because your life has been for so long, like decade plus, just following guidelines that already exist. And so I think the ability to look sideways and smell the roses or look and see, enjoy the view disappears. Like people just get fixated on, I have to set up a clinic because that's what everyone else does at this point in their career. And only later on do they start branching out again because you see that sort of late career trajectory where everyone starts to then explore their interests again. Um, but the thing that I've been dying to ask you is, um, you know, like the, the typical story is that people have like, you know, got into medicine or started something, dropped out, gone and started a company in the US and uh, lived happily ever after and been on the front of magazine covers. Now, you started off with research, then went into medicine to, you know, basically be the doctor so that people are going to listen to you, mm -hmm. gone and started something up, then come back mm -hmm. and are on the verge of doing something else. Like, that's a very different story, right? A, why is it that version? B, why made, what made you come back to begin with? Mm. Um, because it seems like you've kind of hit success, like, you know, the American dream level success over there, you were, yeah. you know, and yeah. so like that, like, has, is the most fascinating thing that I've been dying to ask you about, like, what's yeah. the story there? So I, I had, um, always wanted to be a doctor from when I was very young because my, um, my family had a bit of a tragedy when I was five years old, my little brother died in our family. Oh home and he, he drowned um, and my parents didn't know how to resuscitate him and I'd always wanted to be a doctor because I ever I thought if I ever get married and have a family of my own I'd always want to know what to do in those settings to be able to help someone or help help that not happen to me not happen to you know the people I love and care for so I've always had that strong drive to be caring and, and sort of very very kind sort of mentality um I'm sorry to hear about that that can only be it's fine. Like that's yeah. the worst thing happened, man. I'll tell you about my car accident in a second. Holy shit! Um, but you know that that was uh, that was rough. But um, you know, I I think that I always wanted to do it, and I always loved doing it so much. I was quite good at it in terms of the orthopedic stuff. But then I know every time these opportunities sort of came up, and I I thought about what I could do. I suppose it's the established road versus the road less traveled and sorry to quote Robert Frost again, but you know, taking the road less traveled is sometimes a risk uh, because sometimes you can end up in a much worse position than what you would be if you took the established pathway and grind through the training and come out as a consultant and then set your clinics up and away you go. But the only people who really ever do something significant with their lives and their careers are the ones that dare and 
I have never been afraid of failure. I've never been afraid of doing something different because I've never really cared about what the alternative perceptions of what other people thought about what I was doing. I just wanted to do it for me. And so I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to be a doctor. It wasn't because my dad was or because my family expected it. It was just I wanted to do it. And I wanted to do this research because I wanted to make a difference in the pathway. And I want to commercialise this technology because the only way that this is ever going to make a difference to a patient is if I successfully commercialise the technology so that my colleagues can use it. So, you know, and look, fortunately for me, in retrospect, it's all gone pretty bloody well. That's great. Um, but it has been a continuously winding and torturous pathway because I have always seen opportunities. And when I've seen them, I've gone, oh, geez, this is this could be really good. This could be something really exciting here. I should, I should have a look at this. And then... There's a little voice in the back of your head that goes, no, stick to training and do the same thing that everyone else does. But then there's a much bigger voice that goes, fuck that. This would be great. <laughs> and you go, okay, I'll try that. So I go and do the thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, US went incredibly well. Um, and, you know, that was awesome. Came back and started training. That went, that was going well. Then this technology's turned up. That was going well. Hit a speed bump metaphorically and literally when I had a massive car accident in 2017. Um, which delayed my pathway forward a little bit, but um, you know, and that also was one of those moments, those sort of sort of sliding door moments where, you know, I, I had a really bad car accident in the United States in um, in April, Anzac Day actually, and you know, I woke up eight days later from an induced coma with a broken spine and a broken face, and I was joking with you, like I used to be a model, um, but I got. <laughs> Plates and I've got face. more middle than nine, man. Yeah, I've got screws <laughs> in my back. I've got uh, rods in my back. It's just a mess. Are you an Avenger? I want to be. Uh, <laughs> I will avenge joints. That's what I'll do. But, um, yeah, so I had that really bad car accident. And, then, you know, being a patient, um, when you're going through training to be a specialist, is uh, it's a pretty intense um, role reversal because, you know, when I woke up, you know, I had my mum there, which was wonderful. Um, and you were in Australia at the time? No, I was in California. I was mm. in Palm Springs. I was at Deg Desert Regional Hospital in Palm Springs in the Frank Sinatra Ward. Huh. Quite literally, wow. Sinatra Ward. Because <laughs> my family are all Italian, and so Frank Sinatra's like our Pope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's pretty awesome. Um, and, you know, I had my eyes sewn shut because I had all the plates in my face. Oh. I couldn't move my legs because my cord, my spinal cord was so bruised and so edematous that I just had no function below L1. Um, I'd been fused from T12 to L2, so I had no bending. Oh. I had a fracture dislocated lateral clavicle and dislocation on my shoulder. So all I could do was speak, hear, and use my right arm. That was it. And, and just for context for non-medical people, so that's basically half your body is paralyzed yeah. and you can't move it. You can't yeah. move, you can basically move one arm and your face. That's about it. Well, yeah, I couldn't even, I couldn't even chew because my, my, all my top of my jaw had been wired forward. So I had, I had what's called a Lafort type two fracture from the airbag. And anyone that says that airbag's not uh, dangerous is like, mate, 200 Ks an hour into your face. Like, it hurts. So basically the front of my face was like caved in um, and they had to kind of pull it back out and then put it, fix it all on together with plates and whatnot. Um, and so, which is why whenever I have people in the car that put their feet on the dash where the airbags are, I get so angry. It's like, no, don't do that. It's, you don't want your knee going through your head. 
Um, so yeah, I had that recovery and that recovery was a good six to 12 months. Um, it was six months before I was functionally able to, to work and do all the things I wanted to do, but I was doing rehabilitation and, and Pilates and yoga and a lot of core strengthening. And it wasn't probably until about 12 months where I felt confident where I could be athletic again. Um, but you know, throughout that whole period of time, you know, I had to stop everything. I had to stop everything I was doing, operating, medicine, research, all of it. And I had to just focus on recovering and getting healthy. And there was the perspective change was phenomenal because, you know, the nursing staff that like, I've always had a very fond love of nurses and, you know, my sister's a nurse. I, I worked as an assistant in nursing when I was a medical student and looked after patients that had spinal cord injuries, which is slightly ironic. Um, but, you know, I've always had a deep interest in, in that caring space and, and I've always liked nurses because they spend so much time with our patients and I didn't really fully understand how important that was until, you know, I was reliant on them to do anything. Like, I mean, anything. I couldn't move. I, I If I wanted pain relief, the nurses. If I wanted to eat, the nurses. Drink, toilet, anything, it was the nurses. And, you know, they were just phenomenally caring people. And, you know, I, I am eternally grateful for their care and the care of the doctors that looked after me and put me back together. But um, talk about a perspective change, man, like that's a 180 and you, you really altered my perception of how to be a good doctor. And, and, and I, I think I became a better one as a result of that. Um, and I was changed. So sorry, I turned it around, but it was, uh, in terms of, you said the perspective change in terms of like, it's patient empathy is what you're describing at the moment, Mm. right? Um, has that translated to anything different in terms of how you're running your startup at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. So look, we've got a very, um, we've got a very, how do I explain it? Um, it's going to be clumsy and I'm sorry for that because I've never really had to articulate it before, but we have a, a blame free culture, I suppose, if you want to call it anything mm-hmm. it's where, look, it's a startup, you know, things are going to go wrong. People are going to make mistakes. We're going to stuff things up and, you know, have to go back and scramble to fix things, you know, and we're doing that every day. But one of the things that I noticed that was quite difficult in medicine, particularly for me was that, I never understood why publicly humiliating your, the people you're teaching in your training, because we've all had that happen to you. I know you have, because I have too, where people tell you you're this, that, or the other for not knowing something. And it's like, I never felt like I got smarter because of it. And I never felt like I was a better doctor because some, some boss had yelled at me and said, oh, you dickhead, how did you not know this esoteric bit of information? But it took me 15 years to learn. How did you not know that? It's like, really? Like the biggest pet peeve of mine, because I'm like, we're all adults. You're not I my parent. It. I know. You cannot, like, you I know. Mean, that doesn't there's... make you a better doctor? No, it does, of course yeah. it doesn't. It's like, you know, it's like having a friggin', you know, if you had like a professional sports person, like someone that's, say you've got a professional uh, uh, athlete that, that does like footy, like a professional footy player. And you came up and said, all right, I want you to play the local Bronte Beach under 10s. And they get flogged because you're playing professional sports people. It's like, oh, you, then you go to the Bronte under 10s and go, you're shit. Cause it's, <laughs> it's like, really dude? <laughs> I'd be surprised if it went the other way. Yeah. I, I think medicine still has it. Like it's, 
I can say from anesthetics point of view that there is a very slow shift towards like the blame free culture, but because of the whole, um, uh, ever since there was an Elaine uh, case called Elaine Bromley in the UK, where uh, someone, uh, so basically it was a, the short version of it without getting into it was uh, basically someone needed to have a general anesthetic Mm. during the beginning, the induction phase where you intubate someone, people Mm. got so focused on intubating the patient even though the nurses were like, hey, you know, you can bag a mask and that's been working. They got so focused on just putting the tube through the vocal cords that the patient eventually died, even though they had multiple steps where they could uh, bag and mask and rescue and all that stuff. And the nurses were coming up with all these things, but the people involved were just single-mindedly going down this one pathway. Yeah. And it just so happened that the patient's husband was a pilot. And he was like, oh, how are you guys investigating this critical incident? and realized that medicine is a very much a blame and shame culture. So then he started to bring in, um, because, you know, bad things happen. And he's like, look, it's human factors and this, that, and the other. And people are like, hang on, what? You're not just angry at us. He's like, no, bad things happen. My wife has passed away, but we need to do something about it so to prevent it. And that's where all the risk manning and everything's come from. It still hasn't changed, but from team anesthesia's point of view, it's uh, a lot of it is, you know, you identify a critical incident, you look at all the factors. It's kind of like, you know, like doing care flight. If you are fatigued, you just say you're fatigued, full stop, done, you're off the mission, right? Yeah. If there's a near miss, you report it, they'll try to mitigate it, not because it was your fault or anyone else's, it's just shit happens and you got to try and account for it so it doesn't happen next time. And that's aviation culture and yeah. anesthetics is trying to embrace a bit more of that. Um, but yeah, uh, one of the things I just wanted to ask as well is like in terms of your career, um, you've obviously explored the curiosity, right? Don't you have the other problem of too many things? Needing? Like, how do you focus on one task? That's probably got to say, that's my biggest. It's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, man. It's pretty easy. So what you do is you set the thing up that is the most important critical process required that, that needs all your energy and time. And then everything else sort of works in a hierarchical way below that. So for me, a lot of people do things like um, do task lists and to-do lists and all sorts of jacks. But for me, I do time allocation. So I know that a certain task is going to take X number of hours. So rather than plan to do the task and list and get my dopamine hit from ticking stuff off, what I do is I know how many hours I've got to do the task. Sorry, I know how many hours the task will take. And then my job is to find out how to allocate my time accordingly so I've got the capacity to service that requirement. Just going back one further step, though, it's like, say, yeah. you're seeing problems everywhere, right? Like, you've done yeah. enough of the problem solving to see problems everywhere. Yeah. How are you not running around doing or trying to do 200 different things? Because you, I'm sure you've seen the potential solutions. Like, you've yeah. picked one avenue, but just from what you've said, yeah, there's a hundred ways of how to expand, expand what you've done already. Yeah, and it's very true. tempting even within a startup. It's like, okay, great, you've got this great solution, but really, it's a platform to solve so many different potential issues yeah yeah look you're right distraction is a very selfish selfish question because this is what i struggle with like no, it's okay. non-stop so distraction is death um, diversification is death when you're in the startup so i think for those situations what you've got to do is one of the key things that i've identified with this technology is it's it, look up look i did in orthopedics so that's what i knew that's, that's all it was um it wasn't because i had some you know, light bulb, aha moment that was orthopedically related. It's just I knew how to apply what I'd created and invented in this space because I was familiar with this. So it was low-hanging fruit for me. Um, 
But you're right, it is platform technology. And we will do this across a number of different areas. And what we're finding is happening is that we're having people from various specialties, neurosurgeons, plastic surgeons, pediatric surgeons, coming up to us, vascular guys, gen surge, urologists, saying, hey, I've got this problem where I've got an infective and inflammatory mimic in this condition pattern or this condition scenario. Can you solve this problem for me? And the answer is always, of course we can, if you can show us the cohort. Because we figured out the science behind how to do it and sift through all the information, that's great, we can do that. We can translate effectively the way the immune system talks to itself and what it's saying about what it's dealing with into English in real time. That's great, we can do that. But you're right, we can do it across a wide range of things. But look, there is a rush to get this out quickly because I want this to be able to get to as many people as possible and do it as quickly as possible to help as many people as I can. But I'm not in that great a rush because what I know is that once we get this one done, we've got another eight or nine companies to run off this platform technology. And each of those conditions, each of those scenarios, with the right funding, we could get them all done in parallel if we wanted to. But that's 20 years of work. And it's not like I'm going to be out of a day job anytime soon. Like running this company and doing this technology for the next 20 years will be incredibly time-consuming and all-encompassing. But it'll be great. But as we move forward, I know that there are people that will see these, these podcasts or, or watch our talks or visit our websites or, or watch our read our literature that we publish or whatever the case might be and go, oh, hey, so I've got this idea. Um, there's this thing that I was thinking about in this area of medicine that I, I don't know. And they're going to go, can you help me with that? And we're going to go, yeah, of course we can. Let's do it together. Um, because one of the biggest issues I've found in Australia is that Australians start up slash VC slash sort of, you know, I suppose fundraising culture is very, very much we will reward success that's already happened and we will fund you in retrospect, but we will not take a chance on something because it's, it's just the appetite for risk. Just isn't. It's a very different funding landscape here. Yeah. And one of the things we've deliberately tried to do is we've deliberately tried to stay in Australia because we want to make a difference to the Australian landscape. And I don't know if you've ever seen the, um, the migration gumball video. Um, it's a bloody great video where they talk about, you know, what countries can do with migration and gumballs and, and it's a visual representation of how that works. Anyway, the, the too long didn't read version is that whilst migration helps the country that is the recipient of the best of the best for talent and knowledge, because realistically anyone's can migrate anyway. What is a better solution for the countries that are losing these people is to let them thrive and grow in the environment in which they came from. And so, sure, look, I could take this to the US tomorrow. I can get a phenomenal valuation. I could raise my money in two weeks and it'd be an American technology. And there would no, be no Australian association with Ortho DX or Simpacore because the US quid pro quo is that this is a US centric device. and. You're going to set yourself up in a U.S. office and you're going to become a U.S. company. And I mean, I could do that tomorrow, but, you know, Thank I... Thank you for not. Chandra I'm, and I have had this debate many uh, times and I'm like, come on, we've got to build stuff here. Yeah, I'm trying. I really am trying. Yeah. You know, we've worked out some great relationships. We've got a manufacturing supporting relationship. I mean, when you think about what we've done in the space of time, we've done it in three years. We've gone from a really good idea in my head to a physical device on a machine that runs in a laboratory that we're going through our 
our lab validation for now to roll out once we close our capital raise to roll out for randomized control trial across the country and then roll it out with the US colleagues to get the data for an FDA submission. Like in three years have done that. That's fucking amazing. And <laughs> that yeah. had to be done. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, canned, canned, canned laughter. Um, but yeah, so we've done that. But the thing is, you know, what we want to see is we want to see the Australian public in terms of granting and in terms of device support, manufacturing support, all this sort of stuff follow on with us. But the problem is here that the talent pool is just so, so thin for people that can critically assess and understand this sort of technology. I mean, we're lucky. Not just thin, but we're at net negative though. Most yeah. of the people that I know, they leave. They leave. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that's why I'm like very glad that people like, oh, I mean, even Atlassian list, listed, I suppose, over there, but they're still kind of predominantly based here. So like yep. just to have a bit of a center of gravity. But I mean, you know, we, you know, I, through my friendships, associations and my networking, you know, I know people at all the great VC firms and, you know, we're talking to them all and trying to sort of hammer out the final details of how this all looks. But the other thing as well that's really interesting is we've got so many, you know, physicians and surgeons that are investing in this technology as well who are the end users. So when you, whenever you've got end users investing in the tech, like that's a pretty bloody good indication that it's a good thing. But for all of that, all of the, you know, enthusiasm, support, arbitrary external validation of how well this technology performs, all of the objective data that says this is going to be an absolute smash hit. Do you think we can get a grant? No, not a cent to save our lives. Nothing. Do you think that's a function of because one part of it is like funding a, a commercial idea and that's the VC in, investment infrastructure. And mm. there's the opposing side, which is kind of like the government and research infrastructure, right? And they, they're meant to kind of self-support each other. But like my wife's just finished her PhD uh, not that long ago. Yes, and it's great. yeah, like, I mean, she's, she's done that. She had no issues with it, but predominantly it seems like there's a dwindling sort of research grant pool and it's more competitive. And so much of the time is spent on the applications and the red tape versus yeah. the do the thing. Yeah. And is the, do you think it's that like, where is the problem in all this? Oh, I think the problem is in the ability to see beyond what you know and to see beyond what's in front of you right now. Because one of the big issues that we have is, you know, whenever we talk to, so we were talking to an advisory group who aren't particularly brilliant at what they do, but they were introduced to us by one of our friends who's fairly nifty in this sort of investment banking sort of VC area. And he said, oh, these guys are good. And I think they're more mining driven, sort of that, they understand that space a lot better, they don't understand healthcare. And just trying to get them to understand not where things are today, but where things are going to be tomorrow once you have this new technology available to you. It's really, really hard. And, you know, one of the things, we put a grant in a while ago. I can't remember what it was for. It might have been MTP Connect or something, whatever it was. It doesn't matter now. We put in, like, 30 applications for grants. Zero dollars so far. Um, and it's, it's just a because, job. <laughs> yeah, shit shit is, mate. Absolutely. And I, I, I take my hat off to anyone that does that that work. It is, it is mind-numbing, back-breaking, just demoralizing shit work. Been there, done Which that. Is my I completely point. empathize with you. <laughs> and also it's a, it becomes a problem because it stifles any 
innovative sort of company, small innovative company trying to get it, yeah, it very much geared towards large groups that probably don't actually need it necessarily. No, they don't need the money. Um, they strategy. collect the money more as uh, feathers in their cap to yeah. then show their other people that, hey, look, we've got something. Yeah, it's like, great. And, I mean, I'm sure we'll get grants in a few years' time. But as I've said to... When you won't need it. Right. And I've said to my team, you know, they're like, oh, you know, we're talking to one of the grant people. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. And they were like, oh, you know, when you're a bit further along, you know, you might be a better probability of getting a grant. And I was like, lady, if we get any further along than where we are now, we're not going to need another cent for the rest of our lives. Like... The grant is for now when we need it. Not when we're further along, we don't. So, you know, it's like I've just given up on it. Like we've set our last set of grants through this year. I've just said to the guys, like, mate, we're not going to bother with this anymore. We'll just get our money privately because at least with private venture, you can talk to them and say, hey, this is exactly how we're going to develop this tech. This is exactly who we're selling it to. This is exactly how we're getting paid for our technology. This is exactly the difference that it makes. And these are the numbers we're projecting because these are the people we know and these are the presentations we've mapped. All there, ready to go. And they look at that and they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Here's your money. Uh, Yeah, I mean, so just the reason I get a bit frustrated in all this is that uh, I've obviously stuck to the traditional anesthetic path, but you know, Chandra went off and started his startup. That was like helping do little design stuff. Um, one of our other friends started Smiley Scope and she was like, Hey, do you want to go lead our US expansion? And I was like, man, I literally just finished three months ago and I have my first consultant job. Uh, let me get good at this. Right. And yeah. then you go, oh, and I'm very much like you. I'm like, man, if I eventually do, cause it's like the itch is very much getting harder and harder to ignore. Mm. Um, but it's like there's just there's just so much potential, but there's just so many arbitrary roadblocks. Yeah. Like as in, do you focus on going and building something or do you go or focus on like trying to do the politics of like removing some of the roadblocks? Because like, some of them are just stupid. Like some of them make no sense whatsoever. Mm. And having seen Chandra's journey and then Evelyn's journey and whatnot, and then one of my one of the other interests in my uh, in the public hospital I work is simultaneously somehow running three separate startups uh, mm. and, and a, a not-for-profit at the moment. Like, mm. ridiculous, but he's somehow pulling it off. Um, but it's just so painful to watch. And you're like, man, it's hard enough. You just need to take these random roadblocks out of the way. Um, that's my little rant for it. Mm. Um, but I think the last thing there is there's different people have different interests. Some mm. people love that, you know, political game and whatnot. And... Uh, some people love building things. Some people mm. like just, you know, making little things and have no interest in growing them. They just want to make it and pass it on to somebody. So I think one of the nice things in med, there is actually medicine does attract a variety of people. Um, mm. And of course, there's a variety of people outside medicine who have all sorts of interests. Um, but I guess, you know, seeing it from a medical perspective, it's just people aren't really encouraged to go and, just do whatever they feel like doing. You had your itch to scratch with, oh, yeah, I wonder if I could solve this. So you went. Mm. But that's not necessarily encouraged um, in a lot of areas, which is sad. Yeah, look, I mean, <clears throat> to both of your points, I think that it would take a very, very dedicated person to want to solve those roadblocks, Rafi, 
I don't know. I, I'm not that guy. I, I just don't care enough about it because one of the things that we've all identified tonight has been a universal experience we've all had is that all the talent leaves, right? So if all the talent leaves, logically, what's left, right? And those are the people making the decisions. So if all the people that could affect the change, that would have the capacity to understand the points of difference that you are articulating have left, and all you've got is, you know, the departments that you're interacting with being run by the wombats that stay, they don't necessarily have the talent to leave, therefore they do stay, therefore they don't have the talent to understand what you're articulating. You are already in a zero-sum situation. You will make yeah. no difference. But you, you kind of go, look, whilst I absolutely agree and the frustrations are born from this, it's kind of like this, there are others, they're going somewhere and the other place also had a, like, there, there's this, as with all things, it's like, you know, you can look around and look at democracy, for example, right? Like every time there's been a system that's been left alone for too long, it corrodes or it develops like, you know, uh, inefficiencies just by design. You just can't have anything big without it having inefficiencies. Yeah. At a certain point, it's like, a, so my theory on this is twofold. One is you can either blow a system up and rebuild it, right? Mm. Or you can incrementally change a system. And that's incredibly hard because the rate of change, you can if you push too quickly and it's a crumbly system, it'll just break anyway. Like you didn't want to start a revolution, but you've accidentally done it, right? But you have to have a sustained amount of pressure on it because otherwise, if it's a one cog changed, right? And you've got this big complex system, the cog will crumble or conform to the system. So AKA, if you need a critical number of people applying pressure in a direction to change the system for the better, otherwise the system will change that person into being an inefficient cog. And, uh, and I think that's the dichotomy here is like, you could probably could change it. You just need to actually have a concentrated push versus a dilute dilution of effort over time, because that just makes bitter, angry people who are now part of the problem. Can I offer a third option? Yeah. So one of the things that we do with our technology is everyone's got the same bullshit story about how it's better for healthcare and better for budgets, right? We, you know, make patients pathway through the journey of their healthcare better. Right, we do that. Everyone does that. We can save you money by using our test. Right, we do that. Everyone can do that. The thing that we can do that no one else can really do with our technology is we can reallocate resources. But we do it in a way where people aren't aware it's happening. So what ends up happening for us is that with the use of our technology, we can have patients streamed in or out of hospital system based on their diagnostic pathway from whatever the gene test is saying. As a result of that, you have reallocated the resources and capital of that system for that system without anybody having any influence over that reallocation. And because it's been done in, an in a discrete sort of hands-off way, the system will inevitably change, but no one will be aware of it, which means someone can stuff it up and no one can oppose it because no one's aware it's happening. So literally the UK's nudge unit in their healthcare networks and whatnot doing, yeah. uh, yeah, brilliant. That's the third option. I think that's the way I would do it if I could do it. But you know, the best part about it is that, you know, if you can re-optimize the system because the systems are good in the healthcare space and in particularly in Australia, we've got a good healthcare system. If you can re-optimize those to make better use of those tools that you already have access to, you don't, you're not short of talent. We've got some of the best surgeons and physicians in the world in this country. And you're not short of a bloody good resource, you know, infrastructure to work against. We've got phenomenally well resourced to set up hospitals in this country as well. 
what we don't do very well is we don't allocate those resources to their best possible endpoints and uses. So by having this tech reallocate things without people knowing it's happening, that's a, that's a really good party trick. Yeah. Well, I think one of, one of the nice things, I guess, about what attracted me as well to the sort of, you know, startup aspect of things as opposed to trying to solve things from within a hospital is that you can start, you have much more scope to affect change. Yeah. And you can start to try to influence how the hospital works by doing what you're doing, for example. Mm. Yeah, I think that's um, Sorry, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but I was like just going to say, in the interest of time, because it's been an hour and 20 minutes already, uh, sure. <laughs> I just thought uh, we should talk about stuff like, what do you do outside of work? Oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> um, sorry, man. I, that actually went way quicker than I thought. Um, yeah. I just that, only just noticed as well. So that's why I was like, oh, well. Yeah, wow. That's really cool. Um, yeah, look, compelling conversation. Very nice, guys. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Um, outside of work, what do I do? Well, I can't really say I've had much of a work-life balance at the moment. Um, I've got a lovely holiday coming up um, for myself and my other half. We're uh, going to a friend's wedding in Bora Bora, which is going to be great. Oh, wow. Lovely. Nice. I've never been there before, so I'll be pretty excited to, to do that. Um, I, I do really enjoy, um, I really enjoy adventure-type sort of recreation rather than, you know, um, I suppose, you know, having stuff. I don't, I, having stuff is great, but I just don't. I'm not a stuff kind of guy. Like, you know, I understand about Peloton in the background. Oh, that's yeah, million love. <laughs> See what of all the things that we've got in terms of health stuff. That's actually a bloody good device. <laughs> I know it's a bit of a bit of a g up because it's a huge amount of money spent for a computer. It's basically, a, a an almost stationary bike with a friggin iPad stuff in front of it. I've only used it for a week in an Airbnb, and uh, like my wife was saying, you know, I've seen you use exercise devices, and you're kind of like sitting there, not really. She was like, you were puffing hard. Like, whatever yeah, yeah. The, the secret sauce is amazing. Yeah, it flogs you, and I love yeah. it because you know, I've, as I was saying at the very start, like I did a lot of work with athletes and and cycling and all that sort of stuff. So I really like this. I just don't like cycling on the road because, you know. In the eternal battle between cars and people, <laughs> I think cars are yet to lose that fight. So um, I don't really, really want to be squished. So this is a great... One of the neurosurgeons in Townsville had exactly your experience of being stuck in an ICU for about a year. Yeah. Um, he, he was in Melbourne when, when I was in training. So I was going to say, yeah, there's a few people, up, especially up north, who've had bad things happen. Yeah. My bike is still over in the US and I was going to get it shipped back. But... Um, there's been a series of ophthalmologists hit by bikes lately, so I'm like, oh, maybe I'm just going to leave my bike in Palo Alto forever. Yeah, I mean, when I was a younger, more foolish lad, I used to race motorbikes um, and, and you know, cars as well. But, you know, I used to love it. Then a, a few too many of my friends started getting cleaned up and, you know, I thought, oh, I can't really keep doing this anymore. So I sort of gave the motorbikes away and then, you know, decided that, you know, I don't really need to go fast anymore. So I gave the fast cars away. And then now I just put around in a, you know, a diesel SUV, baby bus, you know, and I mean, my fun stuff now is not, it's not that sort of, you know, material things. It's more about going and doing stuff that I really want to do. And Millie and I are pretty, um, pretty interested in travel together. And we both 
have very similar interests in what we want to do. So we both really love being able to travel through Europe and the USA. She lived in America for a bit of time as well. So we both had that sort of similar experience too. And I think between the two of us, you know, there's a lot of things that we want to do as a couple before we start, you know, getting anchored to a place with kids. Um, what was your most recent favorite trip? Like, what's an example of an adventure? But it sounds like, you know, you're, you're kind of more off the beaten track kind of a uh, people. Uh, so can you give us an example of uh, what that's like? So it wasn't a planned adventure, but... They never are. <laughs> I recently was doing a locum up in Armadale to help one of my colleagues out up there who was pretty isolated. Basically, a lot of the consultants had left the department and retired. The senior registrars had left. There was just a junior registrar there who's basically never done anything. And, and he was like, you know, really interested in technology. And he's a really good friend of one of the guys I work with here in Sydney. And, and he said, look, you know, we're sure we need help. And I was like, yeah, I'll help you. So it is a Sunday night. It's a few weeks ago. It is piercing down rain, as it has been here in Sydney for the last five months. I'm driving up. The roads have been turned to shit because they've been potholes and washed out and it's just rubbish. I'm driving along and <clears throat> I hear a couple of bumps in the car and I just thought, geez, that felt a bit harsh. I reckon if I hit one of these yeah, potholes on this road that are any bigger than this, I'm probably going to blow a tyre. And literally 60 seconds after I thought that, I hit a pothole <laughs> and I blew both tyres on the right-hand side of the car. I was like... <laughs> so it's pissing rain i've got a space saver spare luckily the rear run flat tires ripped the sidewall open but it hasn't lost pressure so it still had enough pressure to get me to armadale so i've had to drive at 60 kilometers an hour in torrential rain in this car all the way up to armadale get to armadale they're like we don't have these tires here buddy <laughs> so i'm like oh great <laughs> like we'll track the car back to sydney i'm like oh great <laughs> so i ended up walking to and from the hospital while i was doing my own call so every time they oh like and it was like five degrees and would call me they'd be like we've got a patient here with a fractured hip and i was like i'm coming i'll be 15 minutes get in walk 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 turn up and that was a pretty funny adventure and millie was uh having a very good laugh at my expense about that one but um, I think one of the best things that I've done of recent times is we went on a trip together with her family. We went swimming with whale sharks on the Ningaloo Reef. Oh, wow. Oh, nice. That was wicked. Nice. Oh, my God. Alexander's over in Perth. I, so uh, drop in. I managed to make it there pretty much at the very end of the season. It was oh. a very last-minute trip, and we missed them by a week. <laughs> oh, dude, we, we planned this trip. We, we were really looking forward to it. We stayed at Sal Salas, which is that mm, yeah. hotel on the beach there. Oh, amazing. Um, it was a, For it context, was best looking oh, glamping tents I've seen. Oh, they're, they're wicked. But the only problem is that I, I'm a cold weather guy. You stick me in the snow, put me on a hot beach where it's 40 degrees inside what the What time of year did you go? Yeah, we were in March. Oh. Yeah, it was pretty hot. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> and... Um, you know, because it's a crazy place because they've got all the water and tanks buried in the sand dunes behind the beach. But because it's so bloody hot, even as you turn the cold tap on, it's still coming out at 40 <laughs> degrees. <You're> like, oh. <laughs> um, but it was amazing. Like swimming with these whale sharks was just unbelievable. And, oh, what an experience. So, you know, in terms of adventures and stuff like that, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that at some point in the future we'll be able to have 
some nice toys and, you know, nice houses and Range Rovers and all sort of jazz. But I think if Millie and I stay true to what we really love about what we do together as a couple, I think our thing that we'll always prioritise is going on, on adventures to do things. And um, one of the things I'd love to do with her is I'd love to go and see the Northern Lights. Um, yeah. That would be wild. So um, that would be pretty cool. And I'd like to go through Italy with her so she could meet a lot of my Italian family and, you know, go through all the parts of Italy that we both love. So that would be pretty cool too. But yeah, I'd... I'm going to Greenland at the end of the year, so oh, in oh, a couple too, of months yeah. actually. So, yeah. Uh, I think that at the end of internship, you know how everyone goes on holidays together? So mine was to Iceland with a friend to see the Northern Lights. Yeah, so it's, yeah. yeah I stayed in um, the Igloo Hotels in um, Kakaslatsa. Norway? In uh, Finland. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was... I haven't done Scandinavia yet, but yeah. Oh, dude, it That's was crazy. What... We were literally in the, in the Arctic Circle for the Northern Hemisphere, and that was just like wild. But that was such a baller trip, man. I, so... I would love to do that just at the end of last year, Chandra and I, and so we went to Antarctica a few years ago and the guys Ooh. from there, um, the, the guys that we met, the, they were startup people from the US. So yeah. they, we almost were thinking at the beginning of next year of going to the North Pole, but there's only one Russian icebreaker that does that. Oh. And currently uh, that is currently off the uh, menu for <laughs> obvious reasons. How did you get to Antarctica though? That's pretty cool. Uh, was a very we'll talk about it after we finish the podcast. Trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> very last yeah. random trip, shall we say? Because I think uh, we'll we'll go way <laughs> over with these random stories, otherwise. But yeah, one um, question for you though: with the yeah, adventure and the yeah. startup, one thing I know is generally speaking with startups, especially at the start, it's pretty full time, full on. Yeah. yeah. How do you, you know, I mean, it's obviously, it's always difficult to plan and expect things. But yeah. how do you see your time in the startup and out of the startup changing over the years? Um, well, so to put that in perspective and into context, I've had 12 days off in three years. Um, I think that I would like to have more days off. But once the, uh, once the company gets funded, hey buddy, once the company gets funded and everything gets sorted out, moves forward, what I think will probably happen is that I would start to get the right talent in to help manage the things I don't need to be critically involved in all the time. And I think by being able to hand off critical tasks to people that you trust and allows you more time to think about the higher functions of what you want to do with the company, then that combined with more routine, can build. you can build more time back into your life. Um, but I think if we do everything right and we go according to our broad plans of what we want to do with the companies, I think... I should probably be able to retire by the time I'm about probably about 45 if I wanted to. So um, I would just then do the next 10 or 15 years just for funsies to do a few more projects, but do that on a much better work-to-life ratio. In terms of what, what do you foresee your work-to-life ratio being for the, say, next five years before you get to, you know, your milestone of escape velocity, if you like? Yeah, I think um, it'll be... A, uh, a lot of work and travel to sort out all of the different relationships that we need to build. Because, I mean, you know, we're talking to people in the UK, Germany, Finland, um, uh, Belgium, uh, Zurich in Switzerland, um, France as well. So um, there's a lot of relationships that we'll need to manage. And that'll be a lot of time and movement around the place. Um, I think... I just mean more from a personal point of view of, like, 
I have you put any thought into it? Because like, I'm sure like just for the listeners out there, every time there is a startup story, right? And mm-hmm. I think predominantly there is also this fear of A, it's the unknown. B, it just seems like, you know, one of the reasons was consultant life for me was difficult enough just trying to start up, right? And then you go, do I want to replace this with literally the same thing? With yeah. Like, you know, I, I go for like, I've basically for the pandemic been working three, four weeks in a row, having one day off three, four weeks in a row. Like I've been bitching to Chandra about this for years now. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, it, what does a sustainable startup thing look like for someone who's interested? Like, what is, what do you think is possible? Does that make sense? Like from a, yeah. Yeah. So look, I think the key answer to that, and it's the key thing that I've really focused on is having, making the time, because you don't have the time, you've got to make the time to invest in the relationships that are important to you, whether it's family or friends or a sports community or a hobby or, you know, guitars, music, passions, whatever, because you know, obviously I've, but a ton of guitars over there. I love music and all sort of stuff. Um, your spouse, your partner, your family, your kids, you've got to make sure that you put a lot of time into that. And I, I deliberately take the time to invest in spending as much time with Millie as I can to make sure that we're really happy as a couple and that we can endure all the shitty long work days that come from being in a startup and to also plan life milestones. You know, we want to get married soon. We want to have some kids. And I think we want to try and belt ourselves now to get this out of the way so that as we've front-loaded the work on the milestones for the company, as that starts to accelerate and generate its own inertia and its own gravity, then we can just sit back and we can do more family stuff and then let the company drive itself forward because we've got people there. And the other thing as well that I'd say is to get that to happen, you have to incentivize the people you bring into that professional sort of company role. And I don't mean like, any anyone can earn a good salary and you know fine but i find if you give people a slice of the pie you give them skin in the game from an equity perspective that really motivates them to do it's their company it's their thing too it's not just mine it's everyone's so yeah i think like just to summarize that point it's kind of like it's like saying look if you're going to do outside the, like, if you're trying to do something that's not a job, right? Like Mm -hmm. as in startup founder is like a whole bunch of stuff put together to build something, right? Um, A, it's up to you, but it also seems like you're, the first couple of years are probably going to be heavy, but instead of it thinking of it as like, oh, look, I get five weeks off a year. It's Mm -hmm. more like, I probably will have to work really hard for a few years. And then the, as you said, the inertia continues. So your trajectory of time is that instead of trying to do things like here's a block of time, some time off, uh, you're basically doing everything in series. So it's just concentrated, but mm. then you're, you basically reach your retirement. If you want to call it that earlier, like you wear ti- work becomes optional. Uh, mm. Is that a good summary? Of- yeah. So, yeah. yeah, but you don't always yeah. have to do it in series, right? A lot of the things that we do, we do in parallel. And I think the joy of that is that, if it gives you the opportunity to get as much done in the time frame as in as short a time frame as you can, I think that's been one of the keys to our success because we've done so much at the same time. People will go, how have you done all this? How have you achieved all this in such a short window of time? It's like, well, we've done it all at the same time. And that, that has its own risks because sometimes you drop the ball when you really shouldn't have. But generally speaking, as long as you can stay on top of it, if you, you do exactly what you just described, which is get it all done quickly at the start, it's going to hurt. It sucks. 
But then once it's done, the, the next part of that phase of your life, man, it's so much easier. It's interesting you sort of say that because there are sort of, I guess, different types of startups as well. Yeah. And one of the things is to acknowledge that yours is the fast-growing kind of startup that you're aiming for uh, because for what you're doing, it's very much a need to move fast and need to make it work as quickly as possible. Mm. But something I'd throw out there for other listeners is there's other types of startups as well mm. um, for people who perhaps don't want to front load as much but maybe just want to kick along for a while. And so there's something yeah. to consider. Yeah, that could be in other domains, um, which I think is interesting. But, I mean, for the stuff that we're doing, and I've got a few other startups that I'm involved in in less of a more of an advisory sort of help, helping role rather than being as directly involved as I am with this one. You know, they'll progress not as quickly as, as AuthoDX will, but that's because, you know, this is going to make a huge difference to the clinical outcomes of lots of people. And we are obligated, in my opinion, we are obligated morally to get this done as quickly as possible to make sure that we can help as many people as we can along the way. So nice. that's why we push. Well, couple of random questions now. Um, yeah, go. So can you tell us something that you've learned or discovered recently that's not related to your startup or med in general? Something random. Hmm. For example, know, um, example. <laughs> I've uh, been recently, uh, I've been on a bit of a sort of learning about cooking things and, of course, then trying to look into it a little bit too scientifically. And it uh, turns out, for example, dried mushrooms. They're not actually just the same as just concentrated mushrooms, mm. but because they get heated, um, they undergo sort of a, that Maillard reaction, which is what uh, meat undergoes when you sear it, and it actually gets a whole bunch of different chemicals, and mm. the taste changes. Um, so I've been learning about that. I think I think the thing that I've learned about recently is obviously um, my little puppy that's floating around here somewhere. Um, I've never had a pet before. And so I've never really known what it's like to grow up with a dog and watching him develop and do all these things that he does is incredibly cute. Um, but I recently learned, so he's doing this thing at the moment where he knows he's not allowed on the bed. So he waits till we go to sleep and then he f creeps up onto the bed really gently and softly. And he wake, we wake up with him like either in between us or he does this other thing where he just goes over Millie's head like a hat. <laughs> and so I didn't know what the hell was going on. So anyway, did some Googling, and it turns out that when golden retrievers, wanted their, when they're being protective, they go over the top of someone's head like a hat to protect them while they're asleep. Yeah. That was just unbelievable. I just so, he's just such a cute dog. I love that little guy. He's so amazing. And I was, for the record, very much not in the mood for a dog at the moment because life <laughs> is horribly challenging. But unfortunately, my, my beautiful other half came up to me and she said, um, we doing this weekend. And I was like, oh, I'm working. She's like, do you want to go to Dubbo? And I was like, she hates road trips. And I was like, Dubbo? Yeah, Dubbo. It's like, oh, well, we're going to go pick up uh, our dog. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Well played. She's like, well, someone told me that it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. And I was like, <laughs> I said, Sounds like she's been reading too many of your startup books. <laughs> Mate, she, just, she just absolutely quoted me back to me. And I wasn't even mad. I was like, damn you, woman. Well played. <laughs> well played. <laughs> like, okay, um, I guess we're driving a double. <laughs> Can I ask a random question as well? Which is, um, 
so far, you, you've kind of explored your uh, curiosities and it's kind of like you've designed the life that you actually definitely want to lead, right? Mm. But in the back of your head, there's got to be the run off and join the circus version. What is that? Um, oh. Like, what is the alternative Anthony doing? Like, uh, where you just go, nah, this is too hard. Oh, I just hang on, in... Just let me qualify this question really quickly. So, Rafi, yeah. do I have money? Uh, yeah, why not? Uh, you don't have unlimited money. Like, it's not like you can just go retire on a beat. You're still going to have to do something for work. Oh, uh, yeah, does that sure. make sense? Yeah. Uh, do something for work. All right, I'd probably... All right, just... all right, two versions then. One, you have money, and the other one, you have to work. Okay, so do something for work. I would probably go and uh, either do a corporate role. i tell you what I'd do. I would probably work for an investment bank as that translator between the medical stuff and the investment business stuff because that's the rare, unique combination of talents that I seem to have been able to pull together is the science, inventive, entrepreneurial stuff the entrepreneurial business type stuff and the medical knowledge. That's pretty rare in one spot. Hmm. So that's, that's what I would do as a, if I had to do something that I'd find pleasurable and joyful, that's what I would do. Cause I think I'm too old to train in orthopedics ever, you know, and finish that pathway. I'd, <laughs> I'd be too grumpy, but um, if I had money, yeah. so Orthodx yeah. has been sold or listed or whatever's done. And I'm looking at a pretty good payday. Um, and I decide bugger this. I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to go have fun. Um, I would probably start my own F1 team and just race cars. Wow. So hang on, you're going would to you be racing team and be or... the racer. Yeah. No, I'm too big for racing. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just sort of over six one. Like I've been a hundred and, you know, hundred kilos. I, I don't fit into an F1 car. Um, you know, I'd be like a fifth of the weight. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> A distinct disadvantage in that game. No, I, I just love racing. I love I love the engineering feats and the and the, the cleverness. You know, the FIA's got their rule books, and then you know, they're just something silly like the Ferrari fuel flow meter scandal. You know, Ferrari's was it was either Ferrari or Red Bull. I think it was Ferrari. Was suddenly their engines were developing all this power that the other cars couldn't get, and the way that they um, they had a fuel flow meter that had a, a maximum fuel flow rate of like 100 liters per hour or whatever it was, and so Ferrari. I figured out that the fuel flow sensor had this this amplitude of pulses to check for what was going on in terms of the, the flow rate. So Ferrari just set up an actuator that in the valley or the trough of the amplitude for the sensor, it did it have a reverse amplitude to put more fuel into the fuel flow, but it was never detected. That's cool. That's so cool. Gotcha. Red Bull was like, well, we don't know that they're doing this, but if we were going to do this, this is what we would do. And then the <laughs> well, now we're going to change our fuel flow sensors, and then Ferrari all of a sudden lost all this power, and everyone was just like, "Man." Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's just that sort of stuff. I, I I just love that aspect of racing. I think it's so just working out creative solutions to F one teams essentially yeah. would be your yeah, other job. Exactly. Nice. That'd be cool. So basically, you should watch Netflix's Lupin uh, <laughs> if you haven't already. Yeah, I'm watching the the drive to survive at the moment with Millie, and uh, she's yep. she's not a car girl at all. But you know, she's like, "This is really really interesting stuff." I'm like, "I know." She's like, "Do you still watch F1?" I'm like, "Every week, qualifying was on last night, like you know, or free practice was." Sorry, but um, yeah, so it's pretty cool. But, yeah, I'd do that. That'd be my alternative path. 
Um, awesome. Um, given that it's been like an hour and 45 minutes, yeah, we, uh, should. we should probably start wrapping it up. So is there, do you have any advice for, because again, a lot of our listeners are medical at this stage or like general life advice that you'd like to give? Like if you could summarize something to say a 20 year old, right? What would your key take home thing be to say, look, you know, life ain't too bad, but Maybe this will make your journey a bit easier. Do you have anything yeah. that you'd say is a summary of Anthony's wisdom? I think the wisdom that I would summarize down is to, I'd, I'd learn how to communicate really well, really quickly. Because I think almost every single issue and problem that you would ever have or encounter in your life is more of an issue of communication skill and ability rather than knowledge or particular issues for conflict. And I would say medicine more than anything else is one of the key things I've always taught, you know, whatever juniors have come across my pathway is that um, medicine is about managing communications and managing relationships. It is not about the medicine itself. It's not about, because anyone can be taught how to do a procedure, how to learn a drug dose, how to memorize anatomy, you know, pathophysiology, whatever. It is about how well do you communicate that with your colleagues and how well do you communicate that with your patients? And can you make that communication level jump up to highly specific, technically sort of expedited conversations with colleagues down to incredibly basic concepts with patients that have no understanding of what's going on? Um, so I'd say do the communication thing, be really, really good at that and um, be compassionate. You never know what someone's going through and you never know how bad life is. If they've had a bad day or if something's gone wrong in their life that you're not aware of. So if someone's in a bit of a foul mood or something's going wrong, just step back and think, right, well, I haven't really had anything to do with this person, so it can't be me, logically. So, you know, there's something else going on, so I will be kind and compassionate in this setting. So, yeah, compassion, communicate. Great advice. Chandra, any last questions, queries? It sounds like you've summed up nice, nice little parting advice for our listeners. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one other thing would be just uh, in case people want to get in touch with you, I know you're yeah. going to have a busy workload. Charles yeah. opted to just get people to email us and we pass it on. Is Would you like to share? Oh, no. your... Yeah, I'll hand out my details. Yeah, so look, for what we're doing with our capital raise for Series A, we've got, um, we're just going through the final stages of our advisory appointment. Um, and if, you know, we're getting our mandates coming out in the next couple of weeks with a few different big ones, but one really big one in Australia that we're very, very excited to work with. Um, and I hope I haven't jinxed myself there. But, um, you know, so if you want to get in contact with us, uh, there's there's a web, there's an email for info at orthodx.com.au or you can just email me directly. It's just my name. So it's Anthony with no H dot rapisada at orthodx.com.au. We'll put it in the show notes and stuff, yep. Yeah. And look, generally speaking, you know, we're pretty good at getting back to people. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've had in terms of those communication stuff through the website, which is, again, it's all W's, uh, orthodx.com.au, um, there's a contact form on there. And we've had a lot of people come contacting us recently, actually in the last couple of months, because we've been doing a few speaking events and stuff like that. And... Um, We've had a couple of different medical subspecialists actually contacting us through that pathway. Actually, we had two anaesthetists contact us through that pathway amongst other specialties. 
about trying to um, work on solutions that they for problems that they thought were really interesting. Um, so I would encourage anyone that has an idea or, or has a condition they want to solve for to get in contact with us so we can sort of get an idea of how to do it. That'd be good. Is there any other types of people that you're looking to get in touch with? Um, I mean, anyone that wants to invest, I suppose, there'd be a good opportunity to have an Australian success story that you can be part of and be part of that history. That'd be good. Um, colleagues, friends, anyone that has a question or, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe someone that's got advice about how to build an F1 team. <laughs> or if you're well, doing you orthopedic being... training and want to uh, maybe go chat to a startup instead. <laughs> I think I think the key is that if anyone wants to take a wander off the beaten track and actually go run their own pathway and do their own thing for a minute, I'd be very happy to offer advice and, and tell them about all the mistakes that I've made along the way so that they don't have to make them so their pathway is better. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being so generous with your time. That's right. uh, so we'll have all the info for contacting Anthony on yeah. the show notes and, you know, like and subscribe and all that jazz for yeah. more podcast episodes like this. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's been a real pleasure. And I'll, I'll chat to you about your holidays off, offline. All righty. Well, without further ado, until next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.